Progressive Radio News Hour with Stephen Ledman, Thursdays at 11 a.m. and weekends at 1 p.m. on the Progressive Radio Network. Welcome to the Progressive Radio News Hour. I'm Steve Lenman. Uh, my guest today, delighted to have her back, Ellen Brown. That means we'll be discussing all issues financial. Uh, and Ellen does some of the most extraordinary writing on financial issues. Also, her remarkable book, called Web of Dead, out in a new edition. And I call it what it is. It's an essential analysis of the private banking system how they usurped money creation power. They stole it. They stole it. And Ellen explains how we can take it back. Ellen has that book, and she's writing marvelous articles all the time. Ellen, welcome. We, I, I'm going to mention a, a few of your recent ones going back, uh, oh, a few weeks, just to refresh listeners' memories on the kind of important topics you write about. Welcome. Are we connected? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Stephen. And you write great articles, too. <laughs> well, every time I read one of yours, Ellen, you know, I think you've taught me so much. But each one, I mean, it just opens my eyes. My eyes just bug out reading your stuff. <laughs> so you've got a new one that is still a work in progress, and I thank you for sending it to me this morning on something you call MERS, how we can use this, what was uh, originally created as a nefarious instrument to harm us, how we can use it in our own self-defense. And I have to tell you, when I saw MERS, M-E-R-S, I said to myself, gee, that sounds familiar. And I thought for a moment or two, and I said, aha, I remember, I think back in the 1980s, something called MIRVs, M-I-R-V. Do you remember those? No. MIRVs, MIRVs uh, were uh, uh, multiple nuclear weapons oh. <laughs> uh, sitting atop an ICBM or atop uh, uh, or attached to a submarine ballistic missiles. And what do you think these things were called? <laughs> That's the most beautiful part of it, Ellen. Mm -hmm. they, were called, they were called peacemakers. Oh, no. <laughs> peacemakers. Uh, the old Vietnam line about destroying the village to save it. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, it's one thing to destroy the village to save it. It's another thing to destroy the world with nuclear bombs and calling right. it making peace. Well, the theory, the theory is that there, that you wouldn't dare, and therefore, therefore you'll, uh, you'll not revolt. But if people do dare, then you've got... A nuclear holocaust on your hands. Well, I would I, w I would add one comment to that. Uh, nobody would dare so far. <laughs> yeah. So far, the unexpected is what worries me the most. Mm -hmm. But talk about what MERS are, M-E-R-S, and uh, and how they were designed, but how how homeowners facing foreclosure 
possibly can use these in their own self-defense, which I think is marvelous. Mm-hmm. Well, they may be the Achilles heel of the um, mortgage banking industry because it was because MERS is the mortgage electronic registration systems. It's uh, Apparently, there are only 44 people working there for 2.2 million mortgages are held in the name of MERS, but they don't really have any people there. It's all just electronic. So the idea was to hypothecate or turn all these mortgages into electronic things that could be traded around, rather like stocks in the stock market that can be sliced up and traded around. And so because of MERS, the subprime mortgage debacle was facilitated. Without it, you wouldn't have had that because people would have been able to go to the – well, what MERS did was they allowed the sellers to avoid – um, assigning the mortgages from one one holder to another. So it was just all registered in the name of MERS, and then it got shuffled around among the various owners. But supposedly, the whole point of the laws that require you to record a mortgage is so that people can trace the ownership. So you can go to the recording office, and you can see exactly who has title to your, or who holds your real estate, and who has... Um, if there are any liens on it. So if you're buying that real estate, let's say, you want to make sure you're buying it from the real owner and you want to make sure that there aren't other liens in front of yours that you haven't heard about or other you know, other liens that you're going to have to pay off when you buy this thing. So you want to know exactly what you're getting, and that's the point of the recording statutes. So MERS allowed um, the lenders to avoid, and that means the big uh, Wall Street banks. You know, It was set up by Citigroup and, and the, the big players. Uh, specifically for this purpose. So uh, it allows them to get around the recording statutes, but uh, one problem is that uh, cheats all these counties out of their filing fees. I mean, that's sort of a small problem, but there are now lawsuits being brought in the name of all those counties to try to recover those, plus treble treble damages. So that could be a lot of money if the courts see the the wisdom of it. it's clear that the law has been broken. There's no question here that um, MERS is not the true title holder and that when they sign these things, actually they get people nominees or they get people to step in and sign who have really no relationship to MERS. So it's all, they're basically perjuring themselves by signing these things at all. But but the only time they come up with the assignments is after they've filed the uh, the foreclosure, then they'll scramble around and come up with some papers that look like they've got a, a, an assignment. So it's all very phony. It avoids the laws. It cheats the counties out of a lot of money. But w- the worst thing about it, of course, was that it facilitated this whole fraud that is what has brought down our economy, and we're still suffering from it. I mean, millions of people have suffered from this. So it really is It's not just a technicality. It's real damage has been done by MERS. And courts are now starting to to see and to hold that they don't they didn't have title in the first place, and therefore they can't transfer title. And that means the chain of title is broken. That means nobody owns these or nobody can foreclose on these properties. So theoretically, you could have 2.2 million homeowners who get off scot free. That that is a remarkable possibility, Ellen. Just a couple of points. Of course, you get the states pitted against the federal government. 
because there is absolutely no question that the federal government uh, was a co-conspirator in letting Wall Street set up uh, this, this kind of junk and subprime and, and uh, the securitization scam. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I was long since old enough to remember when a mortgage was a mortgage. The last one I took out was in 1973, paid off almost 10 years ago. And there was, uh, I don't know if there was anything called subprime, but I never heard of it then, and nobody ever raised that possibility with me. I made a, a normal deposit, and I took out a, a long-term uh, a 29-year mortgage, and uh, it wasn't securitized as far as I know. And, uh, I mean, I always dealt with the, with, with, with the bank that gave me the mortgage. But the way they do them now is... You take out a mortgage from whatever you call a mortgage creator. could be a bank, could be somebody else, I guess. And then they chop it up and securitize it. So uh, whoever owns your – it's not whoever owns your mortgage. It's all these players out there that own pieces of it. Mm-hmm. So I could, all, I could go back to my bank, but if I took out one of those mortgages today – I guess I wouldn't have a bank to go back to uh, to discuss things like this. Is that right? Right. So, so that the buyers are being cheated out of their rights to, um, if they have a good defense, say predatory lending, if they were induced to sign these papers not knowing what they were getting into, and they were told it was one thing and it's really another. And you know, everybody does that. Nobody reads a 20-page contract line by line. What you do is you ask the agent that sold it to you, well, what does this mean? And the agent says, oh, that's just form. You know, don't worry about that. Just sign here. Everybody does that. Those are contracts of adhesion. There's laws against that sort of thing, too. So they have good defenses, uh, which they can't bring because nobody, there's nobody to say, well, the agent told me this. You know, it's what agent? Well, it's not our agent. Um, we're just the, We're just the nominee for the real owners here. And it defrauds the um, the securities holders, the, all those people that bought the mortgage-backed securities, thinking they were getting AAA things because they couldn't, they too couldn't just walk into the recording office and see what they were getting and see who was who was supposed to pay on these mortgages and to see how unlikely it was that these people were going to pay, like when they're signing up janitors and people that just don't have any income. So there are a lot of potential claimants here. A lot of you can see a lot of potential lawsuits flying around. But the parties that will go, would go down if the courts were so bold as to, um, if many courts, more and more courts are doing this. So there's more and more precedent. There's a big case in California, and that was what I was writing about in that article that just came down. Oh, and, and, and the, well, you know, you know what, what what strikes me, Ellen, is. Uh, uh, if uh, and of course California is so important, uh, the most important state in the country, and if California does something like this, and, and and if they win anything at all, they may not win at all, but if they win anything at all, that really is an incentive for other states and localities to do the same thing. And if enough of them do it, it could be a uh, a bit a bit of a tidal wave uh, that maybe uh, uh, the federal government does not want to uh, take on. So, so you, so you've got the Wall Street bandits versus uh, the state courts, 
And uh, how this plays out, well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But there's no question, Ellen, that, that we, we have a wave of foreclosures. We have a wave of people who simply cannot make the payments on their homes. And, and the numbers aren't subsiding. I think they're growing, not subsiding. So we're talking about potentially millions of homeowners uh, uh, in the last two years, this year, the next year, and the housing crisis is not getting better. If anything, it's getting worse. This will this could go on for years, and who knows how many people could be affected when this thing finally ends, and we can actually take account of how many people lost their homes and so on. I mean, this is this is a real calamity affecting millions of people in the country, and if there's any relief that they can get. Well, you are you are showing them a possible way. Uh, uh, people need to know about your article, Ellen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's why I thought it was important say, enough to read. Well, Ellen Brown told me I could do this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but well, you it's should like show possibilities. Each each one, like the California court could point to. There was a Kansas Supreme Court article, which or sorry case, which the the last time I wrote on this subject, that was the case I wrote on. So they could point to that court and other courts like in Florida and uh, Nevada, different places that have held. So the more precedent you have, the the more solid the case is and the more likely other judges are to follow along. Um, I read that there, there are places where they're giving uh, foreclosures every 20 seconds. I mean, oh. it's they're literally foreclosure mills and they just stamp them without looking at the paperwork. But if the judges come to realize that those papers are not valid, that those are actually perjured assignments that are signed after the foreclosure was filed, and there's no real chain of title from from those people to whoever the real owners are. And, in fact, nobody really knows who the real owners are because it's all been shuffled around. Talk about a scam, Ellen. Uh, I I mean, this whole business that uh, did not happen, and oh, we've said it over and over again in this program, none of this happened by accident. This was all planned. And uh, another guest who uh, comes on every now and then, uh, what I I can get her with all the other things that she's doing, Catherine Austin Fitz, Mm -hmm. who was a former uh, Assistant Secretary of Housing back uh, for, for the senior Bush administration, and then she had her own business. And, uh, I mean, she saw this thing, this scam being developed, uh, in the early 1990s. And, uh, she brought it, she worked for Jack Kemp. You remember him? I know the name, sorry. Oh, he was secretary of he, he was a former pro football player. Uh, I, I think maybe he, uh, his, his uh, career lasted a little bit too long. But, uh, he then became, uh, secretary of housing, uh, for, uh, uh George Herbert Walker Bush. And Catherine was his assistant uh, director, and uh, Catherine was cut out of a different stripe uh, than Jack Kemp. Uh, Catherine saw what was going on. She blew the whistle. I mean, she went to him, and she said, uh, do, you, "Do you realize what we're doing? Uh, I mean, I mean, we're creating a monster here. We have to stop this thing." And uh, she was told in no uncertain words to shut up and mind her own business. They knew what they were doing. They wanted to do this. This was collusion between the federal government and, and Wall Street, and here we sit today with, with this colossal mess on our hands, and it is not going away in a hurry. Helen, you and I could be back three, five years from now and still talking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Uh, she was the person. I, I did have some email communication with her about this issue a while back, and she pointed out that she she thought there was evidence that they were hypothecating or turning them into electronic mortgages so that they could 
engage in fraud, like sell sell them more than once, for example, use the same mortgages for for different packages of securities. And now I just read that there are they've been short selling these mortgages. Somehow there there are many more mortgages that have supposedly been sold than actually exist or that, that in other words it's a failure to deliver just like the failures to deliver when they short sell stock you know naked short selling where oh, yeah. where they're illegally selling stock they don't own so now uh, most of these mortgages are winding up in the hands of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and there's just a lot that they can't track down these homes the homes aren't there to fill these sales that have supposedly happened, so, so you get players like huge. Goldman, you get players like yeah. Goldman Sachs uh, that uh, probably is as powerful as any company in the country, and uh, and, and the crimes they committed were so egregious that uh, and there was so much outrage and their name was bandied around more than anybody else's. Uh, I guess uh, the SEC uh, a few months ago decided they had to do something but not charge them with criminal fraud, not want to put anybody in the dock and uh, uh, exchange their, their pinstripes for another type stripes. So instead they charge, I forget the exact charges. Uh, I mentioned it in an article that I wrote a few months ago. And, uh, I mean, they got charged with a few things, basically slaps on the wrist. So they literally stole many billions of dollars, and they ended up paying a fine of so many millions. What a deal, Ellen. Imagine if you and I could go out and steal a million and pay a fine of even, say, 100000 Well, let's go steal $2 million and pay a fine of 200000 right. we'll, we'll just keep stealing those millions. I mean, a yeah. 10% payback, uh, I mean, that's a pretty good deal. Right, right now there's all this furor about Maxine Waters because she oh. uh, supposedly – she was aiding her husband, who had two hundred thousand dollars invested in a in a small bank. Well, all she did was she arranged a meeting between an organization that included a hundred banks, one of which was her husband's, and they got together and and they were supposed to meet about trying to work things out, you know, get some relief. I don't I don't even remember who they were meeting with, but she wasn't at the meeting. All she did was help set up this meeting with among a hundred banks of which her husband happened to own some stock and one of them well it was you know it's just a um minority bank i mean uh the, like the local community banks the ones that we're trying to help here and versus uh henry paulson when he was involved with with the whole bailout thing he had billions riding on that i mean he had all these i think stock options i don't remember i i, I read about it before i don't remember the details but so what's the difference? Why did nobody hold Paulson to account? Well, apparently what he did, this is what Maxine failed to do, he got a waiver. Like, you go to, I guess he went to the president and got a waiver. It's like, well, okay, I know I have a conflict of interest here, but this is too important. So it's like you say, I'm about to to rip off the American people for billions of dollars, but since I've got a waiver against committing a crime, I'm allowed to commit a crime here. Or you take the six too-big-to-fail banks, which now have something like, I forget, is it 70% of the GDP? Um, <laughs> and they, I mean, they're, well literally, they're literally in violation of the antitrust laws. I mean, they're clearly in criminal violation here, but they got a waiver. They got a waiver of the antitrust laws. It's like, no, you're way too big to fail. So, so it's... You know, we're not going to hold these 
the antitrust laws don't apply to you because you're really too big to fail. And if anybody forgets, Henry Paulson was the former uh, head of uh, Goldman Sachs, and he was the former Secretary of the Treasury, the guy, the guy sitting in that post when this crisis broke. And uh, uh, that's right. I mean, he personally had, had, had tons of money on the line, and uh, his company, Goldman Sachs, that uh, with the counterparty uh, in, in one deal alone with AIG that was going bust, and there were billions of dollars at stake. They did not want to lose whatever number of billions was at stake. So, old Henry, I mean, it's wonderful to have your guy as the Secretary of the Treasury, Ellen. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, you can, you can, you can arrange any damn thing you want. That's a wonderful job to have. Uh, right. And then when, when you go into that job, you have to sell all your, you know, you had to sell his the, the actual stocks that he owned, but you get to sell them tax free. So he got billions of dollars tax free. <laughs> Tax free. Yeah, that's oh, part of the goodness. deal. <laughs> well, of course, he would have sold them at a fifteen percent capital gains rate. But uh, oh, when you good. own all that stock, <laughs> you, you, you're talking about millions and millions yeah. in taxes, yeah. and they just walk away. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's 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 a wonderful oh it's a wonderful system, Ellen. I mean, if you're an insider. Who could ever complain about stuff like this? Mm-hmm. Ordinary folks, I mean, ordinary people don't even have any idea what the devil's going on. They, they just know there's something rotten in Denmark, but they can't quantify it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why I keep writing, writing, because I, I do think people are, are so frustrated. They know that they're being cheated, but they don't know where or what to do about it or how to put their finger on it. We are being cheated. We're being cheated in so many ways. And, uh, I, I, Ellen, we could, we, could, we could spend the whole day and whole weekend talking about them. But, 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 one, but, but one that bothers me so much is uh, we scream we need fiscal austerity because we, 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 the deficits are too high. Well, why are the deficits too high? Because we spend, we spend practically the entire, well, not the entire, but the great majority of the federal budget on, on illegal foreign wars, on bailing out bankers with an open checkbook in case they need more. Uh, they, they have the checkbook. They have the pen. They could, they could just fill in the numbers, whatever they want, no questions asked. Basically, it comes down to that if they're in that much trouble. And, and of course, uh, there's debt service, which is a little cheaper these days because uh, interest rates, uh, <laughs> they can't get much lower than the way they are now. But, it, but uh, on the longer-term debt, uh, uh, you have to pay something. But uh, I, I don't ever remember the ten-year the ten-year note, which uh, is now the benchmark, at uh, a, a, a fair amount under three percent. My God, three percent, Ellen. I remember when 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 a, when, a, when when bank book interest, I mean, going back decades, paid a solid five percent. You could stick your money in the bank in a savings account, and you got paid five percent, and and and. Uh, there wasn't really very much inflation around at that time, and uh, my goodness, you stick your money in 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 a bank uh, savings or money market account, and they'll pay you something like point oh 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 maybe one percent. I mean, practically nothing, practically mm-hmm. nothing. And, That's why I, I have to actually give a talk this afternoon in Thousand Oaks. I've just prepared my PowerPoint on. Um, Banks are borrowing from each other at 0.2%. That's the Fed funds rate, and really, that's the money that they're the money they're lending on. They, people think they're lending the depositors' money. That's not true. They're not lending the depositors' money. They're not lending their own money. They actually create this money on their books. But in order, when the when the checks go out of the bank 
uh, into another bank and get deposited in another bank. In order for them to clear, they have to go through this reserve pool, and so they have to keep filling up that reserve pool. And if they don't have the deposits to fill the pool, then they borrow them from the other banks. So essentially, they're borrowing money at 0.2% and lending it to us for, well, the states for 4% and to us for maybe more than that. So the solution for the states, it seems to me, is set up your own bank, a state-owned bank like North Dakota does. And my the article that I, the last article I got posted was on the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, which is a brilliant model that they kept up for most of last century. Um, so you own your own bank, which then can lend to the government interest-free. I mean, it's your bank, and so you get the interest back, which means it actually helps. Instead of costing people, it actually helps with their tax position because it actually, in North Dakota, the Bank of North Dakota pays a 26% dividend to the government. I mean, nobody pays a 26% dividend these days. Oh, my goodness. I wish the state of North Dakota sold stock. <laughs> yeah, we'd all invest, yeah. And uh, and maybe as an owner, a part owner of the state of North Dakota, I'd be a part owner of uh, of the North Dakota State Bank. I mean, can you imagine getting a dividend even even a fraction of twenty six percent, Ellen? <laughs> right. There's, there are no. Yeah, that's why everybody's forced into speculating these days. There are no good, solid, secure, regular old investments for savers. Oh, really I don't. I don't ever remember a time in my adult life when I thought about you know where am I going to put whatever assets I had. Uh, when 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 the opportunities to make something something reasonable on 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 your on your wherewithal, I, I mean it practically doesn't exist. I think the stock market is much too risky. We, we've been seesawing. I guess uh, this year, last year was, was the bounce off the bottom, and this year has been basically flat. I, I think the averages are, are a little bit below water, and uh, I, I, I think the bulls are looking in the wrong direction. Anything anything can be positive for a period of time, but but the economic numbers that I do follow, I follow them to some extent on a daily basis. And they are absolutely abysmal how anybody can look at these numbers and think we have a positive economy going in the right direction. Uh, I mean, these people are smart. They're just plain liars to, to put this in writing, to come on television and, and make these statements. They are liars because the evidence is so overwhelming. Even the government data, Ellen, that, that often is so corrupted – like the unemployment rate at 9.5%. The unemployment rate is over 20%. I mean, we just throw out people who say, I've been looking month after month after month and I can't find a job, and in the last 30 days I didn't look. Well, you're a non-person now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I was just in Detroit, and or in Michigan, and they actually are having a I mean, it's a depression there. It, 25% was what the unemployment rate was in the 1930s. And the reason it looked like a depression was that you had bread lines that you could visibly see. You had hobos hitchhiking around the country. You had all those signs of a depression. Today, we have food stamps that are all just quietly delivered to people. I mean, nobody's standing in line. You do see an awful lot of homeless around, but it's just not as visible as it was in the 1930s. But for pe- for people without a job who can't get a job, it's definitely depression conditions. You want to hear I, something that will absolutely choke you because what you said is is accurate, and it, it's been it's been some months now. But I wrote about what, what was going on, what is what was, and what is going on in Michigan, and I highlighted the city of Detroit with a conservative estimate of unemployment 
was 50%. That was the conservative uh. estimate. And most people said, well, it's not true because uh, you, you get into the inner city and you'll get into some parts of Detroit where the unemployment rate is 80%. I mean, there are no jobs. Here is an article in today's New York Times. I just pulled it up again. I'm not going to read it. I only looked at the headline and I almost choked. And, and I'll, 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 name, I'll name the writer of this. It's dated, what, oh, today's the 14th. This was dated yesterday. I'm sorry. August 13th by a guy named Bill Vlasic. He ought to go back to Pickles. Bill Vlasic, and his title is, Detroit Goes from Gloom to Economic Bright Spot. How about that for mm. a title, Ellen? <laughs> yeah, I wonder what the bright spot is. It would tempt me to read because <laughs> I'd want to know what he's talking about. He's talking I about hear it. you can get a home for $200 in Detroit, but nobody <laughs> wants these homes. But, but uh, my goodness, I mean, that's a good deal. I, mean, I ought to look into something like that. <laughs> Yeah, well, it probably comes with some <laughs> some encumbrances. Yeah. Uh, there have to be a few catches. Yeah. But, but can you imagine, uh, I mean, the New York Times isn't exactly uh, uh, your neighborhood newspaper. Uh, this, right. this, this was a feature article because I, I, get a, I get a blurb from the New York Times every day. So I got one this morning featuring the latest articles. Uh, well, this was dated uh, August 13th, but uh, I guess it came late, late yesterday, and I picked it up this morning. But... Uh, my, my, my goodness, I mean, to write an article like that when the facts are so different, and Detroit may be a particularly bad example of how bad the economy is, to have a headline like that, because General Motors uh, uh, didn't go underwater and stay there, because now it's government motors, so they're operating again, which doesn't mean they won't go underwater again because uh, uh, people are uh, losing their jobs. Uh, uh, they have no ability to spend. So how the devil can they go out and buy these expensive cars without all kinds of incentives? And even then, maybe they can't buy them. And, and as the economy crashes more, which I think it will ahead, well, uh, we will need, we'll need another bailout, Ellen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's all this talk about – this is what I'm going to have to write about next – because they're just—I'm so wrong, sure they're wrong. That all this talk about that um, the Fed is with its quantitative easing, easing they're printing money and flooding the economy with money, and that and that that's devaluing the currency. They are absolutely not printing money, and they're not flooding the economy with currency. If they did, we might actually have a recovery. But there is not enough money out there. What the Fed is doing is swapping dollars for bonds that are sitting on the books of banks. And the dollars are still sitting on the books of banks. Nothing has changed. Ellen, hold hold that thought. Let's go back, and I'll let you expand on it. Let's take a brief break, and we'll come right back. That's a very important point. We'll be right back. This is PRN, Progressive Radio Network. host producer Revolving Ideas, Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, and Global on the Internet. Join me each week on the Progressive Radio Network to explore the universe and our relationship to it. Acclaimed theoretical physicist Dr. Michio Kaku hosts Explorations 
with topics ranging from the physics of gravity to the ever-expanding universe. With his light-hearted personality and natural charisma, Dr. Kaku breaks down intricate theories with a comprehensible approach. He's one of the greatest popularizers of science who will take you on a fascinating journey into the world of scientific understanding. So let's take an exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Progressive Radio Network. Freedom News Hour will bring you up to date on the latest news on the financial meltdown. Begin restoring local communities. It can happen. We'll be exploring the issues from a freedom-oriented, small government perspective. I'm Walt Thiessen. I'm Melinda Pillsbury Foster. I am Jake Town. Join us live Thursday evenings at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on ProgressiveRadioNetwork.com. Loyal PRN listeners, do you have any broadcast industry experience? You listen to the Progressive Radio Network. You call into the Progressive Radio Network, and now you can even host your own show on the Progressive Radio Network. PRN is looking for talented, vibrant hosts for a plethora of new shows on various topics, such as college life, Caribbean music, cooking, technology, senior citizen lifestyles, classical music, different cultures of the world, and conspiracy theories. If you have experience hosting programming in radio or television, and you have a progressive point of view, we have the perfect forum for you to have your voice be heard and air your progressive thoughts. Call 646-307-4482 or send us an email at caralee at garynoll.com. K-A-R-A-L-E-E at garynoll.com. The Progressive Radio Network, the number one forum for progressive minds. This is PRN, Progressive Radio Network. talking about uh, several of her important recent articles. Ellen, let me let you pick up where you left off on the Fed and the, uh, the quantitative easing uh, they're doing. Maybe you can throw another element into uh, what you'll explain now, that the Fed at their last meeting uh, this past week, uh, uh, early in the week, uh, uh, they, uh, they announced uh, what they'll be doing but apparently it's a little bit more tepid than uh, what people had hoped for. Uh, they, want, they, they, want to, they, they want to keep uh, uh, their, their balance sheet from, from moving in the wrong direction, I guess. They don't want to uh, 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 quantitative ease uh, too much. I mean, they've done a great deal of it, but they're buying uh, government securities, U.S. Treasuries, uh, mortgage-backed securities, and so on. You explain it. You can do it better than I can. Well, what they're calling quantitative easing is not what Ben Bernanke was talking about when, in 2002, he got the nickname Helicopter Ben because everybody made fun of a speech he gave where he said that you could easily cure a deflation, which is what we're in right now, a deflation where there's not enough money in the system because the banks aren't lending, there's not enough credit out there, 
and all all of our money, of course, is debt or credit. And it, uh, he he said in that speech, which was given in J- Japan, that you could easily cure a deflation by dropping money from helicopters if you had to. This was Milton Friedman's example of the helicopter drop solution to a deflation. And he said the government could do it. Well, A, the government is not the Fed, as we know. The Fed is a privately owned, or all its branches anyway, are privately owned by many banks. Um, And the government does not print money at all. All they do is create coins, coin coin money, and that doesn't expand the money supply. They just replace the old coins when they wear, wear out. So what the Fed is doing, this quantitative easing that they're calling printing, printing money, is not flying over communities and dropping money, which actually might help. That might actually solve the problem. But what they're doing is taking... Um, Debt that's on the books of banks. These are there are 22 um, dealers that are allowed to deal in government securities. So, so those like they're the big ones, J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup, et cetera. They've got um, these bonds sitting on their books. So the Fed is taking back the bonds and giving them dollars. So they're buying the bonds from the banks. So now the the banks have dollars sitting on their books. Well, the theory is that that makes the dollars more liquid, and so now this increases the reserves that that the banks will use, and they'll leverage those like by a factor of eight or ten, like banks used to do, and turn their reserves into loans, and that will stimulate the economy because you'll have all this new credit out there. But that's not how, that's not the basis on which banks make loans. They make a loan to anybody that walks in the door who is a creditworthy borrower, assuming they've got the capital to cover. The, you know, there's an, The capital requirement is totally different from the reserve requirement. It's imposed by the Bank for International Settlements, which is sitting there in Switzerland, and it's, that's real capital on the books of the banks. So many banks just don't have the capital, and that's why they're not lending, partly because their real estate has dropped so much in value that that, that has messed up their books. Like those banks in Detroit, the reason they can't lend is that all that real estate has dropped from, say you had a $100,000 property and you go to, it's foreclosed on, you go to sell it. Well, you can only get $10,000 for that property now. So before, when you could make a million dollars in loans on your $100,000 property, now you can only make $100,000 in loans. So it's shrunk the capacity of banks to make loans. So that's one problem. They don't have the capital. And all the talk is about raising the capital requirements, which I think is rather insane. What they need to do is actually enforce it on the big banks. That That's where the thing went wrong. But anyway, so capital is one limitation. Another is they just don't have credit-worthy borrowers. They're getting money from each other at 0.2%, like they're almost getting money for free. So here are the choices. Lend to these risky businesses, startup businesses that might fail, or homeowners that might go into default, or take your 0.2% money and buy 2 or 3% government bonds with it and get a clean, you know, 2 or 3% profit without doing any work, taking any risk. So clearly they're doing the, the safe thing. Or what else they're doing with that money is speculating, like Goldman Sachs leverages it to the heavens to speculate all over the place. Or they're buying up other banks with it. Or they're paying these great big bonuses with it. So so anyway the, the or fact, all of the all of the above Ellen. 
Yeah. So the fact that these bonds sitting on the books of the banks are being turned into dollars is having no effect at all, zero. It's not increasing the money supply. It's not decreasing the money supply. It's not creating inflation or deflation. It's just a net zero because the bonds are really the same as dollars. The bonds could have been used if they needed the reserves. They'd have sold the bonds anyway for dollars. They can always sell the bonds and so instead, the Fed is sort of forcing this sale, where they're forcing the sale of the bonds and turning them into dollars, but they're just not getting used uh, as loans. So if you really wanted to do a helicopter drop, what you would do is the government should do it. They should print the money, or they should extend the credit, just like Roosevelt did. I know he's very controversial. Half of what he did was not necessarily a good thing, but the things that he did do that were brilliant were like the Tennessee Valley Authority, which, um, I mean, they just extended credit, built all these um, electricity generating, well, however you generate electricity. And my, my grandparents had no electricity in their house until the TVA came along in the 30s. I mean, they put electricity on all these farms that didn't used to have it. It was amazing, Ellen. It's still going today. And uh, I mean, I mean that that really was productive investment. And one of the big points that you make in Web of Debt is uh, uh, you you grow the economy by making productive economic investments. You don't grow the economy by financializing it the way we've done. We've we've offshored the manufacturing base. We've uh, turned everything over more or less to, to the big bankers, meaning Wall Street. So we we have a casino economy. Instead of a, an economically productive economy, uh, what capitalism supposedly was way back, I guess, when the term was, was first coined, whoever, whoever may have done it, I mean, the idea was, uh, was uh, industrial capitalism, not financialized uh, capitalism that doesn't produce a damn thing except big bonuses for the people who manipulate all of the stuff that they do. So, that, so I mean, we're in the doldrums, and, and as you say, uh, the, the banks aren't lending. Uh, besides their own internal problems, uh, you've you've got weak customers that uh, uh, you don't want to lend to them for fee. You won't get your money back, so they're not doing it. Small business is in big trouble. I think there's a scheme to destroy small business. We've gone through that before. We've gone through the scheme of and, destroying farmers and a scheme to destroy the small banks or to oh, yeah. eat them up. To, oh yeah. Um, Absolutely. To become one great big bank. The obvious solution, Ellen, is uh, uh, the for the states for sure, and uh, virtually all the states except North Dakota, the only healthy one, and uh, maybe there are one or two more that uh, are not uh, sitting uh, literally cl- close to or at death's door. I mean, they they are really in dire shape, including your home state, California, and mine, Illinois, on a per capita basis, and even worse shape than California. They are in such dire shape, and the solution that could, if not solve all problems, could go a long way to lifting them out of the the situation that they're in. A state-owned bank, and they and, and and they're not stupid, Ellen. They have to know this stuff, but they don't do it. Mm-hmm. You do wonder, with Ben Bernanke, or the Federal Reserve, when they were starting this quantitative easing, they were saying, but don't worry, we're sterilizing that money. You know, don't worry about it creating inflation because we're sterilizing it, meaning that they were, um, they were taking back as much money as they were putting out there, basically. So what was the point of the whole thing? I mean, if you're going to put money 
on the books of the banks. So that's all they did was shuffle the money around on, on the books of these banks without allowing it to get out there as loans because they because they knew that that would be inflationary. So they didn't want to they don't want to have inflation, but they want to get the banks lending. Well, they, I mean, it just either they're like you say they're lying, or they they have a failure of conceptualization here, a failure to see what they're what they're doing. Again, I, I say, <clears throat> excuse me, Ellen, uh, they are not stupid. They abs- I would not accuse them of stupidity. These people, <laughs> they, they, they know all the dirty tricks. They know, they know all, all of the right tricks. And, and I think they deliberately planned it this way, and uh, they have caused this great problem. Uh, they want to destroy small banks, as you say. I think they want to destroy other small businesses. They want to let the big ones consolidate and get bigger. And it doesn't matter whether they commit massive crimes, of course, against the working people of the country. That's okay. So we have this full recovery that we went through in previous months, uh, companies making big profits. Well, how are they making big profits? Well, all companies, I guess, or, or many, many of uh, are making big profits, or they have, well, they've made them by laying off people, by cutting costs, by reducing wages, by cutting benefits, uh, by uh, uh, replacing uh, depleted inventories, when if stuff isn't bought, uh, they will, well, they'll get depleted, and maybe they won't be replaced. So I think we're heading back toward uh, when... Uh, if people don't have the money to buy stuff and uh, you can't lay off too many more people, I guess you can keep laying them off, but you can't lay them off in the big numbers that uh, we saw before, at least I think not, unless companies are on the verge of bankruptcy, uh, then we will go back into the economic doldrums again, which uh, I think is where we're heading. Mm-hmm. Well, historically, the, the uh, my article about the Commonwealth Bank of Australia um, in 1893, there was a huge banking collapse. Only, and it would, in many ways, it was worse than the one we have now because there were there were no there was no welfare, no FDIC to, uh, and no unemployment insurance, etc. So, people who had their money in banks and thought they were well off suddenly just had nothing. So they were there were suicides all over the place. It was a huge disaster. So, so I hate to say that that's what it takes, but that is when people start to wake up when things get really bad, and they they want it, they know they're they've been hoodwinked, and they want to know what's really going on, and then they start investigating. But in the the situation of the Commonwealth Bank, the government decided, well, the banks have messed up, and they're they're hopelessly lost, so we're going to have to do this ourselves, and they decided to set up a publicly owned bank, um, and that alarmed the bankers. And so they thought, because it would be competition, and so they thought it would everything would be okay if they got one of their own in there. So they made sure that it was a banker who was the first governor. Well, this man, Dennison Miller, had the foresight to see the potential of this bank, and he used his banking skills to for the people, you know, in the public interest. So it was a brilliant coup, really, in the public interest. Uh, the the bankers said, well, you'll need at least a million dollars to capitalize that bank. They wanted to be making the loans, you know, that would keep keep the bank in tow. And Dennis and Miller said, no, we're not going to 
I'm not going to need any capital. I'm going to start this bank without capital. I'm just going to lend, or what we're going to do is advance the credit of the people. The, the, it will be the labor and materials and um, the the value of the, the Australian people themselves that backs this money. And with that, he did brilliant things. For the next, from 1912 to 1920, uh, the Commonwealth Bank, it later became the central bank, but at that time it did not have the power to issue money. So all it could do was issue credit the way banks do. And with that credit power, they did enormous amounts of infrastructure, bridges and um, uh, shipping and uh, funded different businesses, very low interest, um, like a half a percent interest I think they were charging. And then... Um, they funded World War One, the participation of Australia in World War One, all with the all just with credit, the credit of the country. And then when he he passed away under mysterious circumstances in 1923, well, heart attack, but for no good reason. And um, the uh, bankers then got back in. Through, well, the Bank of England was quite alarmed, you know, that they were they would lose their their colonies, I mean, they'd already lost them physically, but, but they had them all uh, still indentured economically by this whole debt system. So they were afraid they were going to lose all that, so they, they made sure they got back in. By uh, After that, for a while, the bank was ruled by a, a board, a board of businessmen, and they made sure that it didn't do all these things that Dennis Miller was having it do. And of course, uh, right here in this country, we had a, especially, especially we, uh, under uh, uh, Abe Lincoln, uh, and uh, you also wrote about that in Web of Debt, where we had that period during the Civil War when Lincoln would not pay uh, usurious rates to the bankers. There was no Federal Reserve in those days, but the bankers wanted to charge uh, outlandish uh, interest, uh, 24 to 36 percent, if I remember the numbers, mm -hmm. to uh, finance the Civil War. And Lincoln said, uh, sorry, fellas, uh, we can do it another way. So uh, he issued uh, what was called uh, greenbacks. Uh, the government issued its own money, interest-free. Now compare interest-free to 36 percent. Uh, case closed. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's what every state could do. They, it would be interest-free to themselves using their own. Instead of taking all the, all the, in North Dakota, all the deposits or all the revenues of the state are by law deposited in the Bank of North Dakota. Well, that is a huge amount of money. In California, that would be, they, they have, I think, something like $18 billion in bank accounts just as deposits right now. Well, th those are mostly in Wall Street banks. So pull that $18 billion out and use that to leverage that into loans, and you've got, you can easily fix your deficit problem just by extending yourself a little credit. Um, when North Dakota did have a budget problem a few years ago, they borrowed from their own Bank of North Dakota and got over it. When they had a huge flood there in Fargo, they didn't have to go begging to Homeland Security. They... Uh, the Bank of North Dakota took care of it, and they, they they sailed through it. Unlike Louisiana or New Orleans, you know, which was devastated by that flood with little help. And devastated a second time right now, Ellen. Uh, <laughs> a, a different topic yeah. altogether. Yeah. Oh, it's so tragic. I know. Oh, indeed. Uh, it's been a good while, but I wrote in the past about a Russian analyst, and I can't recall his name, one of those names that's hard to pronounce, so it's easy to forget without looking him up. 
but he is he was and i imagine he's still convinced that the situation economically here is so bad that he sees uh, the united states breaking up into pieces and literally being usurped by other other parts of the world other parts of the world having influence on portions of of the u.s so canada would have uh, greater influence over some northern areas and uh, the Pacific uh, Coast, uh, California, Oregon, Washington, Hawaii, Alaska, uh, countries like China would have great influence over uh, uh, that uh, part of the country, and the rest of the country would break up as well. But he he sees the country splitting into pieces. My feeling is, just based on the North Dakota experience, I'd love to go back to the idea of secession. I'd love Illinois to decide they're going to have their own financial system and their own economy, and they want nothing more to do with these bandits in Wall Street. And uh, we always have elections that come around. They always elect the wrong people. But how wonderful it would be if we got some people with some power who decided, uh, we better fix this thing, or as bad as it is now, and it is really, really bad, uh, we may not exist anymore. I guess if it gets to that point, Ellen, that's the push come to shove. When people say, uh, do we want to live or do we want to die, then you have to do something that you may never have considered doing before. Well, I don't know that it will ever get that bad. They can always figure out some way to keep the thing going in some manner of means. But if it ever got that bad, or the solution that I love is that people – uh get in such dire straits that you mentioned suicides in Australia when things got that bad. Well, there could be suicides uh, in states, in cities, because things have gotten so dire. People out of work, keep people losing their homes, people seeing no possibility of anything changing for them. Uh, things get pretty, pretty darn bad, not just suicides. Suicides get rid of these people. But if these people start reacting on the streets, that's what gets politicians' attention. Uh, history has shown there are times like that when there are revolutions and whatever order existed it gets swept away and something new comes in it might be better it might be worse but it's different if they if we reach that point or when the politicians fear that could be coming that's when change may come uh it could happen ellen yeah, I would hesitate to recommend a violent revolution. Well, I don't want a because, violent revolution, no, but uh, I, I, I mean they've got all the weapons. I mean, they're ready for us. I think that's what they want us to do. And then they have an excuse to impose martial law. And then we we will have no democratic rights. They'll say, "Well, you had your rights and you abused them." And so, well, we have no democratic rights now. I, I think if they fear that people, uh, uh, there's a saying that uh, Gerald Salenti used, the uh, the trends uh, uh, follower, and he'll be on this program in uh, in a, a, another week or so. I had him scheduled earlier. Something came up. He had to go away, so I had to reschedule him. But his line, which is a very interesting line, he says. Uh, when people when people have lost everything and they have nothing else to lose, they lose it. I mean, he sees some real <laughs> rough stuff coming coming along, mm-hmm. where people, of their own accord, uh, will take matters into their own hands in some manner of means. I will get him to elaborate on that when he comes on the program. Uh, I, I plan to stay indoors and write when that's going on. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
but uh, but I think, I think what he's basically very bad for a lot of people, but because they don't hit the news, and so people aren't aware that they're bad for other people too, and they think they're powerless to do anything by themselves. You know what I mean? If it was all over the news that oh things are terrible and they're oh, bread yeah. lines and uh, then then there might be a, a wave of you know a movement to do something about it. But I think at some point you you go beyond you you cross the Rubicon of 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 economic harshness that's affecting you and so many others. So many are affected that news or no news, it gets pretty obvious. Your next door neighbor's going through the same thing you are. Your, your family, uh, most of your family's going through the same thing. Uh, two streets away, the whole neighborhood is going apart. I mean, I mean, how bad does it have to get before real people realize that they have been scammed? They have been scammed. Uh, the government says, oh, we are going to fix this, and they, they don't fix it. It gets worse. It does not get better. When are we going to hold the politicians accountable? Uh, more and more people all the time, Ellen, realize that you cannot turn on the corporate media. You cannot read the major newspapers or magazines and know the truth. These people are liars. Yeah, well, that's why I think the Internet is our salvation here. It's our peek into what's really going on. So they can't. And it's the reason they want to take it away from us, yeah, ending net sure. neutrality, yeah. which I wrote about. Uh, well, that that is that is our last line of defense. Uh, the internet to, to tell people what's going on. I mean, you and I thrive on the internet, Ellen. If 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 they if they ba- basically banished us and everybody else along with us who tell the truth, uh, I guess that's curtains. Mm-hmm. Well, I, um, I, I have. <laughs> I don't know. My sense is positive. I think it's. I think we'll turn it around. But we need that. The reason I just keep working, working, working is that we we need more and more awareness. We need that whatever it is. Is it ten percent or five percent? Whatever the the critical mass was that. Oh, wake it, up. it does not take a majority. It absolutely does not take a majority. Uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but, but there's a famous quote by, uh, uh, oh, the anthropologist. Uh, what, what was her name? <laughs> when I want to think of a name, I can't think of it. But a Margaret famous, Mead? Margaret okay. Mead, of course. <laughs> Margaret Mead, long, long ago. And it was something to the effect that never underestimate the power of, of a few determined people who decide they're not going to take this crap anymore and they're going to do something about it. <laughs> Well, and I think it's a few determined people on the other side that have that have gotten us into this mess. So it may take a few determined people to get us out. Well, they can they can get us out. It, it, again, it does not take a majority. There have been wonderful achievements in this country, not many, but some, when a minority of the people decided that they did not like the way things were, and, and they changed them. And my favorite example is ending slavery. Uh, there was not a groundswell in the country ever to end slavery, but enough determined people, not that many, decided they would do it. And unfortunately, there was a war thrown in there besides, and Lincoln did not free the slaves, not by a long shot. He didn't give a damn about the slaves, but... But uh, 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 enough people cared, and finally uh, the, the war was that uh, crossing the Rubicon when finally there were a couple of amendments and slavery officially ended. Now we really have it back again. Uh, chattel slavery ended, and we have wage slavery replacing it. We need another amendment, Ellen. We need another amendment uh, legislating a living wage. I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious about that, but we need enough people to realize that our government is our enemy, not our friend, and our government has caused this, 
our government has empowered these corporate predators, and unless we say we are not going to take it anymore, we want a different system that lifts all boats, not just the yachts, and we can do it if we decide we want to do it. Mm -hmm. I don't think they have enough marine divisions to go up against us. And those marine divisions, Ellen, their families are, uh, are hurting. Just, just, just like the Afghan forces and the Iraqi forces that we hired, some of them are not too happy about what we're doing in their country because it, it's harming their own families. So they decide that they will not be our allies. We'll, they'll take our guns, and then they'll, they'll be our enemies. Mm-hmm. Oh, we could go on. Oh, we're almost out of time. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. I, I wanted to mention a couple more articles. Uh, we don't have time to t talk about them, but you talked about how uh, uh, we, we we won't exactly have the kind of sovereign debt crisis in this country that, that Greece has because uh, we have we – have, whether it's helicopter bin or just a, or just uh, <laughs> I don't know of another term uh, a bin doing what he's doing now. Uh, we have Ben who can print money if he wants to print it, but unfortunately Greece doesn't have that 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 prerogative. It's 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 chattel to the uh, 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 European Central Bank. You know what Greece could do, though? Greece could do the same thing that any state could do. The states oh, are in the sure same could. position that the EU countries are. They cannot print their own money, but there's no law against setting up a bank that creates money as credit. In in the Maastricht Treaty, the Lisbon Treaty, um, there's a provision that says uh, EU countries, member countries, may not borrow from their own, the government may not borrow from their own central banks. But then the second paragraph says, this will not apply to other publicly owned banks, which will be treated just as private banks. In other words, you could set up, a, let's say, a development bank, a Greek development bank, create credit on your books, fund all kinds of internal development. Don't use it to pay off your foreign debt, which is how you will get in trouble. But you would actually be creating credit in euros to fund in infrastructure projects in the country, put people back to work, get the economy flowing again just like North Dakota did or like Australia did. Oh, exactly, exactly. And again, I can't believe that the Greek government isn't smart enough to know this, but, but they don't do it. And, and they have another choice as well, Ellen. They could just drop out of the e EU realizing they've been scammed. Well, the people have been scammed, not the, not the people getting rich. Drop out of the EU and they're, and, and they're out from under the ECB so they can have a publicly owned bank or they can use another choice. They can, they can fix their problem. And Greece is a tiny country. Mm -hmm. I mean, they could do it if they want to do it, but they don't do it because they don't want to do it. Oh, we're out of time, Ellen. To be continued, right? <laughs> right. Oh, always, always wonderful having you on. I okay. just can't bear any of the program, but I'm afraid we have to. The next host is coming on. <laughs> many, many thanks, Ellen, as always. Uh, thank you. Steve. And join us again tomorrow, another guest, another topic. Oh, do make this a regular habit. Where else do you get guests like Ellen Brown? Join us. <laughs>